Hello, you're listening to Which Moving Pictures Move Us, and I'm your host, Emma Bosner. We are ending our psychological thriller theme today, and the next theme will be Christmas movies for December. There are so many psychological thrillers out there, so I've tried to pick ones that are more underrated or have been forgotten over the years, and some that I think need to be talked about more. For today, I will be talking about the 1999 film The Talented Mr. Ripley, starring Matt Damon, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow, there's a lot of great actors in this movie. And with me virtually is my good friend Jamal. Thanks again for having me back. Of course. So, for those of you who haven't seen this film, The Talented Mr. Ripley takes place in 1958 and follows Tom Ripley, played by Matt Damon, who travels to Venice, Italy to convince an affluent Dickie Greenleaf to come back to New York and settle down by his wealthy father. However, Ripley becomes obsessed with Dickie and his lifestyle and begins to convince himself that he can be Dickie. Ripley learns everything he can about Dickie in order to fit in, yet tension and anger occur between them, and the honeymoon of their so-called friendship comes to a surprising halt. Um, also, Dickie Greenleaf is played by Jude Law. So, Jamal, what do we think of The Talented Mr. Ripley? This is such a feel-good movie, and beginning to end, you just feel so amazing watching it. Um, it's totally not a downer. Uh, it makes you want to go drink a bottle of scotch after. But it's... um. All jokes aside, this is probably one of my favorite movies. Um, It's so brilliantly written. And the fact that um, the writer did this and The English Patient, like two of some of the best films that came out of the 90s just a couple years apart, is such a testament to how well-crafted and not only well-cast in terms of the actors, but how well-cast in terms of who's behind the camera, like, overall the film was. Um, Because it was nominated for, what, like, five, six Oscars? I think it was nominated, yeah, because Jude Law was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe. But Matt Damon, I was surprised, was not nominated for an Oscar. He was only nominated for a Golden Globe, when I think he should have actually like, been nominated for the Oscar. A hundred percent. He was phenomenal. I think he should have won. (laughs) Yeah, honestly. Uh, Kevin Spacey ended up winning for uh, American Beauty. Not the most popular guy right now. (laughs) Now, We're not going to mention him anymore, but um, I think when I talk about this, you already know how I feel about this movie, and, you know, in The Last Judgment, I love this movie a lot, and I think what I like about it is most psychological thrillers you know, you really feel stressed out or you feel, like, nervous. And this one, you just feel like you're on a trip to Italy in the first half of the film, and you just feel like you're away, which is so nice right now because not many people can get away. And then the second half of the movie, you're just rooting for Tom the entire time. Like, I don't know about you, but, like, I wanted him to, like, succeed. A hundred percent. And what I find so interesting about that, too, is the fact that we're introduced to this character of Tom who throughout the film is revealed to basically be a sociopath and uh, as revealed later in the film, a murderer. And this is not a guy that we should be rooting for. I found it so interesting sort of that like off the bat, um, Ripley is introduced as this very like 
he's in essence a sociopath. He's a sociopathic murderer. I don't know. The way that they did it was so brilliant in the vein of like Taxi Driver or the new film Joker, how we're not supposed to care about this guy because he's done awful things. But at the same time, we are still rooting for him and we do want him to come out of this because he is in essence an underdog. This is a bit of an underdog story. Um, he's going from... Oh, yeah. Yeah, like he's going basically like into this world of like the rich and the lavish and these like overly wealthy narcissistic people that he's engulfing himself in. And he's a guy that like would basically run gigs back in New York and live out of a shitty little apartment as we saw, like as was introduced early in the film. Yeah. So yeah, just that aspect was so fascinating is how they make you care so much about this character that you're not supposed to care about. And I thought it was interesting how like Dickie is like this beautiful male specimen person that, you know, like all these women love, but he's really ugly inside. And he's actually more ugly than Tom Ripley is, which is is really interesting. And I also like how Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, and even Kate Blanchett's character, but Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, even though he's only in a couple scenes, he's the only character that really sees through Tom. And I just love that. Hoffman's performance in this is just so killer. And the fact that he didn't get nominated despite having such a small role was like an absolute crime. And Kate Blanchett and Gwyneth Paltrow, I definitely like they're completely different characters, but both women look very similar. And just the moment Kate Blanchett is on screen, she just, I don't know, she just takes over. Like, and I thought it was interesting how he is the first character, um, when he's the first character that we see with her. And she, he introduces himself as Dickie Greenleaf, which I thought was really interesting. Like, even when he was already on the ship, he was already planning, before he even met Dickie, to be Dickie. Yeah, just the way that he so meticulously plans ahead like that and is kind of, it's revisited throughout the entire film how, like, these other people that he's portraying, like, is basically just a grave that he keeps digging himself deeper and deeper into all the way until the end, which is so brilliantly executed. And can we just talk about how beautifully filmed, like, the movie was? Like, the cinematography? Oh, it just was so lovely, because you were, like, a tourist like Tom. Uh, who's the, who's the DP for this one? It was, um, John Seal, that's right. John Seal was the director of cinematography, who, yeah, so. Oh. Yeah, so he also, he was the cinematographer on the first Harry Potter film, he was a cinematographer on The English Patient. Uh, he did Rain Man, and most recently he did um, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, wow. He's done a lot. What a great resume to have. So, yeah, like he's done quite a number of big like cinematic films like where they just look so big, and he's able to catch the landscape so well. And it really shows in this film and, again, in The English Patient, which he actually won an Oscar for. Um, Just, like, the grandeur of being in Italy, being in Rome, being in Venice. Like, just 
being able to capture it so perfectly. Yeah, and even when like you know when we first meet Dicky and there's all these like beautifully tanned people on the beach and then you see like Tom and he's super pale and you know Dicky is so tanned and even just like the cinematography of when they're out on the boat together uh well anytime they were out on the boat but when they were rowing in their last scene with one another it's just so beautifully oh it's just like even though that's something bad that's happening it's it's just the water is glistening <laughs> exactly yeah something else that they did so well is anytime there was going to be a conflict i don't know if this was intentional or not but anytime there was a conflict or something like awful was about to happen i always noticed that it was either like overcast on like a really dark cloudy day or it was somewhere indoors kind of darkly lit and i just found that oh that's a great yeah I didn't... I never actually... And I've seen this a couple times, and I never picked up on that. Mm-hmm. I didn't Joel, notice it until later. And I was like, that's that's brilliant. In the hotel room, yeah, alone with... Um, uh, I forget Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's name, but when he's a- alone with him, and he's, like, playing the piano, and then when he's alone with um, Gwyneth Paltrow, Marge, it is very lit dark. And then when he's on the boat with Peter on the cruise ship, you're you're correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, something bad is going to happen. Exactly, yeah. And there's a couple things that that could essentially sort of apply to. And it, I don't know, my takeaway from that was that it kind of shows Ripley's overall struggle as a character as a whole. And how when he's about to connect, commit like these heinous acts, whether it's directly through lying or a threat, straight up murder it shows his darker side so well. And then on the scene with um, uh, Dickie on the boat, like the overcast shadows and the fact that it's cloudy and starting to get a little more windy goes to show like the inner conflict of his character and how here he is being confronted by this man who he's essentially like fault, like grown to love and how I don't know I don't know how to put it but it's so brilliant do you think he um because Tom obviously has like he is a sociopath but he also has personality disorder but do you think he um loved him as in like he wanted to be him and admire him or do you think he actually was in love with Dickie and wanted to replace Marge I think that it was more a love of his lifestyle and more of a fascination with mm-hmm. the luxury that Dickie portrayed. And I think that the way that they incorporated jazz throughout the film as almost this metaphor for Dickie himself, where it's like, there's a few points about it where in the beginning, like it shows Dickie's dad, who's like, oh, I hate jazz. I can't stand it. And then... Uh, Dickie, who has this absolute obsession for it, and then you get Tom, who grows to love it. And I think that throughout the film, sort of, like, Tom's growth towards the music is also more of a growth towards Dickie and a growth towards his lifestyle and a growth towards, like, Mm -hmm. this lavish narcissism that he carries with him. But it's... 
that there's a few ways to look at it. Like jazz definitely can. There, it's a huge metaphor throughout the film because it's used so predominantly, and all the way to the point where they're having that conversation where uh, Dickie asked Tom, "Oh, I bet you didn't even really like jazz," and Tom goes, "No, like I didn't at first, but I grew to love it." I think that alone in itself is sort of a nod to the audience where it's like, he's not necessarily talking about the music itself. He's talking about yeah. the lifestyle that he's noticed Dickie live. Yeah, and I think he actually did grow to love jazz because at the beginning of the movie, he's a very classical uh, man. He listens to Mozart and Wagner and like very, very classical centered. And I, I love the scene when he's listening to jazz music and he's trying to like it, but he's still back home and he just doesn't like it. And then when he wants to stay longer with Dickie and be in his lifestyle, he just happens to, of course, this was all purposefully planned, you know, spill out the records and you know, on the floor of the beach or whatever, there's like Chet Baker and Charlie Parker. And of course, uh, Dickie's going to pick up on that and be like, well, you got to stay now. And I just thought that was such an interesting way to show how he was really trying to become him, but also try to first become friends with him and like the music. And then in their final evening, which you just mentioned when he was opening up saying, oh yeah, I didn't really like it at the beginning. And they were both kind of admitting things and Tom was admitting that he never went to Princeton, which I think Dickie knew all along. <laughs> I think he knew he never knew him at Princeton. And I really liked that when they were kind of putting all their cards on the table. That was really well done. Yeah, I thought While that was they were so listening good. To jazz. Of course, yeah. Uh, on the topic of music, what was your thoughts on that opera scene? Yeah, so um, just to give people an understanding of the opera scene, once, and I mean, I'm just saying... For people that are listening to this, you have to watch the movie. But once Dickie is killed, uh, Tom goes to the opera with Meredith. That's Kate Blanchett's character. And there is obviously in the opera, one man murdered another man. And I was wondering, because the song that is repeated throughout the movie is a Cain and Abel song. And I was curious of uh, if, you know, their, their brother's... You know, they're not really brothers, but their friendship of being brothers was signifying Cain and Abel from the Bible. I don't know if that represented what the opera was about. I'm not quite sure. It was kept playing lullaby of Cain at the beginning, at the end, kind of in the middle when, you know, he kept seeing Dickie's face in the mirrors and was having like hallucinations of him. They do play that song a lot. And that's just what my take of it, or he was like kind of thinking, like sinking it in that Dickie was dead. Maybe for him, seeing that opera scene was like, oh my God, I killed somebody. Because he does have a lot of human qualities. You know, he's not emotionless. He's very emotional. Uh, he's a lot of emotions as a person. He's not this cold, like, you know, Norman Bates kind of character. He has actions around why he does what he does. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually a brilliant point. I never really made the Cain and Abel connection. Um, so after I saw the movie, I actually did a little research into the opera because I was curious not just about that one scene, but what the opera has to signify as a whole. And I made a little bit of note of it, but yeah. it's... So the opera was composed by Tchaikovsky, and it's called... And I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Uh, Eugene Wunjin. 
Um, and basically mm. what the opera is about is that the story, and this is directly from Wikipedia, um, the story concerns a selfish hero who lives to regret his blasé rejection of a young woman's love and his careless incitement of a fatal duel with his best friend. And so I think oh. that, yeah, so I think that opera sequence as a whole, and not just the scene that it chooses to portray of uh, this main character killing his best friend in a duel, but the story overall with like this love of a young woman and like the weight of this duel, this murder that he committed weighing on his shoulders, what like the way that that like more than relates, but almost mirrors this story is it, yes. it's fascinating. And it's such a brilliant usage of it as well. Because after he kills Dickie, he is not free of Dickie. I mean, he becomes him, but he has so much guilt. And I think deep down, he does feel bad about it and feels bad about having to do the next murders for the next of Dickie's friends. But, you know, he's not someone that just runs away free and like, hurrah, like he, he is, has many demons. And, and like the, at the very end of the movie, we'll talk about this more at the end when that, that door is closing and he's telling Peter how, you know, it, he says to him, you know, there's um, there's a lot of basements in, in my head. And, you know, you stuff it in the basement and you don't go in there. And he is, like, not a carefree person. Yeah, absolutely. But then, like, at the same time, you know, Dickie is a horrible person. I mean, he, he cheats on Marge and impregnates, like, some Italian woman who ends up killing herself. And, you know, he uses, basically uses Tom to get on the nerve of his father and, like, uses his money to buy, you know, the father gives Tom $1,000 and Dickie uses the $1,000 to buy an icebox and do all these other things for himself. And he treats Marge despicably. <laughs> um, so I, I wasn't that sad when he died. I don't know about you. No, not at all. And I think that, comes to play into why we love this character of Tom so much, despite the despicable things that he's done, is the people he does these things to up until the end are despisable people. Like, you grow to hate Dickie because he's this narcissistic character. He's this, like, he really is just there to expect everybody to love him. And is willing to push them away so quickly when somebody else shows any form of interest, which actually Gwyneth Paltrow points out in a really good sequence on the boat when um, Dickie and Freddie are swimming in the water and play fighting and stuff. And I think that mm. up until it was at that point that that was kind of like his click-off, and then everybody else after that was they were the repercussions for his actions. And the fact that throughout the film, Freddy was able to see directly through uh, Tom the entire time, and he was really the only character that was able to see it until Gwyneth Paltrow figures that out at the end, was, mm -hmm. I don't know, it was great, because for Dickie, none of that mattered. It didn't matter who he was, where he came from. All Dickie cared about is that he showed even mild interest in him. 
and that he was willing to give Dickie this attention until he got bored of him. Whereas the other characters grow to realize that, no, there's, there's mm-hmm. something else behind this. There's, there's something a little bit deeper. Yeah, and Marge even says that to Tom on the boat. She's like, oh, when once Freddie comes in, that Freddie is Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, once Freddie comes into the picture again, and, you know, the dynamic changes instantly because it was just Dickie and Tom and Dickie and Tom and sometimes Marge, and then once Freddie comes in, it instantly changes. Freddie hates Tom. Tom hates Freddie. Freddie is very obnoxious and, you know, in your face. And Marge tells Tom when, when Dickie says, oh, sorry, you're not coming on the ski trip. And Tom is really disappointed because he's lost his best friend, basically. Marge says to him, you know, when you are in Dickie's presence, you feel like you're like the most special person in the world and flying high and and once he leaves you, you are like the lowest of the low. And Marge obviously feels that way because she's being treated that way every day with Dickie. And I also like when Tom says, I think it's near the end. I don't know if he says it to Peter or not, but when he says, and it's kind of a theme, you know, you never meet anyone that thinks that they're a bad person. And I think that's really true. I mean, even a murderer doesn't see themselves as being a bad person. They just seem as like this is what they had to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that conversation with Peter was really good, where he basically uh, not only confesses what he did in portraying Dickie, but tries to justify his actions in that he understands that what he did was awful, but for him, it was never a bad thing because he never saw himself as the bad guy. And it's crazy to think that it all started because Tom and ended up borrowing someone's Princeton jacket, like at the beginning of the film, and and it, it this all happened because of that one thing. And um, I I also thought it was interesting how when once Tom kind of comes clean at the beginning of the movie to Dickie and Marge and says, "Oh, you know, I didn't just happen to know you. We didn't just bump into each other. Your my your dad sent me, and he does the impersonation of Dickie's dad, and then he actually tells Dickie, "Oh, you know, we should all have one talent. My talent is impersonating people and forging signatures." And he says this to Dickie. Yet, like half an hour later, Dickie is like writing his signature on a paper for him, and I'm like, "Didn't like he just tell you he, he impersonates people?" <laughs> Yeah, that was such good... I thought that was really weird. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, it's also in... But he's so in his own world. Exactly, it's so in Dickie's character. um, How he... There's probably a 90% chance he wasn't even properly listening to it. He was just like, oh, you listed off more than I asked you to. Um, Shows that you're a talker, and it shows that you're willing to talk to me. Um, So I think that when during the sequence where Tom was like, no, like, you have to write your signature. No, not your name, your signature, where he's studying. Dickie probably thought nothing of it, because really it's, for him, it's just Tom giving him more and more attention. Because Dickie's an attention seeker, too. I never thought of it that way, yeah. He lives off people. He can't be alone. Yeah, yeah. Um, All I wanted to just say, and I don't know if you know this, but when um, Tom is singing My Funny Valentine, Matt Damon was actually singing that. And Jude Law had to learn how to play the saxophone. Oh, so good. It was so good. 
That's why I think I think everyone should have gotten an Oscar. Like Hoffman, Damon, uh, Law. I think they all should have gotten one. And Blanchett. I think that this also plays into like so well Matt Damon's when he was listening to um, the records beforehand and then going to mention the fact that he's good at impersonating people, how the way that he sings is almost an embodiment of the Chet Baker recording. Like he really almost impersonates him throughout the recording. And Dickie does take notice a couple times where he looks over and he's like, oh, shit, that sounds familiar. Yeah. He impersonates everybody. Just like the the five actors in this movie is it five or is it six the six actors in this movie you know they're all roughly around the same age and and I just feel like there's never gonna be that great people again like they were all like in their late 20s and they were so good together yeah oh my god yeah there were a couple of moments I found where Jude Law kind of broke the accent a bit but Like, he was still, like, nonetheless, Mm -hmm. such a great presence. And he was so, like, he just, he did such a good job of eating up the scenery with, like, like, the way he talked, the way he dressed, how he always had to be the center of attention. And the way that the character was written to the way that Jude Law um, played that performance was, like, it was so just loyal to the character itself. Mm-hmm. And, oh, this is what I was going to say right now. I was going to say how back in 1999, what a risk um, for Jude Law, and, but especially um, Damon and Jack Davenport, who plays Peter, that, you know, show themselves as being gay, especially for 1999, because, like, Back in 1997, when Ellen came out as gay on her sitcom, you know, she, Laura Dern and her weren't getting any, like, movie offers after that. And I thought, wow, like, you know, Matt Damon was just on a high from Goodwill Hunting. He just won the Oscar with Ben Affleck. And I thought, what a risk to do that. Now, it's not as much of a risk, but 20 years ago, I have to give it to him. That, that was pretty risky. And yeah, I was just going to bring up Goodwill Hunting as well, because yeah, that came out, yeah, 1997, as you said. And coming off of that film, it, it, like, it, that's such a huge leap for him to do that and then portray this gay character who has to basically impersonate a heterosexual character throughout the film until he finally gets his opportunity to just be Tom with the character Peter, and then uh, when Meredith shows up at the end, and then all of that shit goes down, then he essentially needs to go back to being this, like, just stripping away everything that would have made him Tom, redeemable. It basically, the person that he is died on that boat, when he literally killed the rest of his life. And um, with, uh, with Matt Damon, you know, um, do you think like that tension in that scene when, uh, I don't know if you remember, but Jude Law's like in the bathtub and Matt Damon's not in the bathtub, but he asks to come in. That scene was so weird. 
And it was also really dark again with the... Yeah, the... that was such a strange scene, man. <laughs> I was like, oh, like, <laughs> head in my face. Like, head in my hands, like, oh, no. <laughs> and another uncomfortable scene was when, um, before Dickie has died, Ripley is, like, dancing around in his clothes and, you know, in front of the mirror and it's so awkward when Dickie walks in on him. And again, go for Matt Damon, you know, doing that. Like, he totally goes out his way to make it look super strange. And that's another, like, eerie kind of scene. Yeah, oh my god, that scene. And it was such a great setup for the things to come as well. How almost immediately Jude Law goes to... Oh my god, no, okay, I just realized something. Okay, so um, how Jude Law essentially immediately goes to tell Freddy about um, the fact that he was, like, going around wearing his clothes and stuff, um, as Freddy points out, despite the fact that uh, when Jude Law revealed that, um, oh, what's her name that he was having an affair with was pregnant when she killed herself, uh, Matt Damon swore that that secret would stay between them, that it wouldn't go anywhere. And so really that yeah. goes to show Damon's not just loyalty, but his admiration for Jude Law is so high and it's just so above and beyond that he's willing to keep the secret to fight the fact that he knows that Jude Law would never, because really Jude Law wants the attention. He wants to have a joke to be able to tell. He wants people to, you know, like, I don't know where I was going with this because I just realized this on the spot. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I, th I think we know where we're getting at here. Yeah, and... and and again, Freddie, you know, I, I, and I can't remember if this happens before Dickie, uh, before Tom tries on Dickie's clothes or after, um, but throughout the movie, you know, Tom, and this is the main symbol, Tom is eyeing Dickie's ring, and, and that's one of the, but um, to go back to that in a bit, I was just going to say when they're all on the boat together and Freddie's there and Marge is there and Dickie's there and Tom is there. And again, Dickie always needs the attention and he decides to sleep with Marge while everyone else is there, which is super awkward because they go down below and and Marge is so weak and it's just really weird. And then Tom is eyeing them like he's literally being the, the cliched peeping Tom. And and Hoffman says, you know, Tommy, 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 like that, those things are just so perfect. You don't need dialogue. You just need, you know, a quick flash of Damon's eyes, you know, lurking and, you know, Hoffman catching that right away instantly. And, and Hoffman doesn't miss a beat. And yeah. How Damon doesn't say a word of dialogue throughout that entire scene, but immediately Hoffman comes in with the jokes, just like, Hey Tom, how's the peeping? How's the peeping, Tom? And then proceeds yeah. to laugh to himself. <laughs> oh, God, Hoffman, what an actor, man. Um, I was going to ask you, do you think Tom was always planning on killing Dickie at, at St. Remo on the boat? Or do you think he was hoping to do the... Like, I know he was hoping that he would leave Marge and they could just spend their life together. But do you think he was always going to kill him? I don't think so. Um, cause I was thinking after throughout the movie as well. And I was thinking, well, 
because I know that he starts to really embody this person. But at the same time, I think that what really was the spark for it all was when Dickie started to give up his fascination in Tom in place of Freddy instead, and how it wasn't even either of them that broke the news that he wasn't allowed to go on the ski trip with them. It was Marge. Um, and I think that's the point where he started to be like, maybe this isn't for me. Um, I don't necessarily need or want to spend the rest of my life with this person, but I wouldn't mind spending the rest of my life as this person who is able to have all these, yeah, who's able to have all these luxuries that I can't, who's able to go on these skiing trips, who's able to, you know, be infatuated with beautiful women all the time and not have to worry about a thing yeah I think you're right yeah I just thought it was funny how he you know when he first meets Meredith he's introducing himself as Dickie and Meredith only knows him as Dickie and those things I always found funny because I sometimes thought okay maybe even when I rewatch it and I know what happens I think oh yeah maybe he's just wanting to be Dickie's lover but then he does those weird things where he says this is my face and tries on the rings and in person. And I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. I think this kind of goes back to my interpretation of Dickie and his love for, um, or sorry, Tom and his love for Dickie as a whole. But I think it's not so much love for him as much as it's love for his life. Um, which is where he starts putting on that face and everything. And all the way to the, from the start, um, as he said, when he introduces himself as Dickie Greenfield, that's kind of the tip of it where random woman that meets him in a station and he's like, like just right off the bat, she's infatuated with him. And he's like, oh, this is what it's like. What was your, I mean, there's so many good scenes, but what was your favorite uh, scene or like favorite kind of character duo because there's so many like there's Dickie and Tom and there's Dickie and Peter and uh, uh sorry Tom and Peter and and um Freddie you know just and like what was your favorite kind of dialogue scene or just scene in general it's hard to say um I think my favorite scene in the film is the sequence in the club where well, actually, any scene in the club, because first, the music is phenomenal. I cannot praise the music enough. It's yeah. so good. Um, but I think between the first scene in the club where they invite him on stage and he starts singing, and that's sort of when he really gets introduced to the idea of jazz, not only that, but the idea of Dickie's lifestyle and how he's kind of fallen in love with this idea. Mm-hmm. But also the scene where they're in the club and he's singing my funny Valentine. I think what make that, what made that scene so special for me was how earlier in the film, Marge is, they go and buy groceries, Marge and Tom. And she's telling him about how, um, one of the first times they met, or I don't know if it was when they met or when they started dating, but it was, um, uh, they were hanging out and, Dickie brought her somewhere and like my funny Valentine was playing. And I think that Dickie or Tom choosing that as the Mm -hmm. song that he's going to sing 
kind of goes to show yes like his i guess infatuation with marge which is played out throughout the entire film uh afterwards and he yeah and he so wants to be accepted mm-hmm. by dixie he'll do anything mm-hmm. yeah i also found it really interesting after dickie died and him, Marge, and Peter, or when he finally meets Peter, he goes to say hi to Marge, and he's cracking jokes, but all she can think about is Dickie. She doesn't even pay any notice to him. Um, mm-hmm. So, just throughout that goes lengths to show his character motivation going forward to be Dickie. How this character that, or how him as Tom Ripley means nothing to anybody until Peter comes along and pays notice to him. Yeah, Peter, like, going and really showing him the love and respect that nobody else has ever done as Tom Ripley. Um, I, I don't know. I found that really interesting. Uh, how the, kind of the turning point to really pursue this path as. Uh, Dickie Greenfield was after Marge was like kind of pushing him aside and he started getting himself deeper and deeper into this situation a scene um, a scene that I really like is when um, Tom is at the opera with Meredith and Tom is Dickie then at that point Meredith only knows him as Dickie and Dickie um, Tom ends up running into Meredith and Peter and this is kind of the first time Peter and Tom meet and there's already like lots of sexual tension but Tom is trying to get the ring off his finger Dickie's ring and it's so suspenseful and I'm like yelling at the tv like please get the ring off get the ring off and you know even when um Hoffman comes to uh the hotel room to visit Tom or visit Dickie, you know, and he's running his hand underwater because the ring's stuck and, and it, there's so much. Uh, and that's what's so great about this psychological thriller because there's so much buildup. Like there isn't too much suspense, I'd say, but those scenes, I love those. And just another thing that I uh, researched and I hadn't really thought of it before was that Marge at the beginning of the movie and the costumes are beautiful, but Marge at the beginning is always in these very light linen clothes, you know, beige, yellow, very nice colors. And then after Dickie's death, she's only in dark greens and then blacks and like dark blues. And she wears like, you know, these really dramatic hats and dramatic red lipstick. And it just kind of shows how her whole personality has changed from when Dickie was alive to the end. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I didn't really notice that. Damn, that's really good. <laughs> Do you think Marge and Meredith look similar, like, on purpose? Or they just thought, oh, I want Gwyneth Paltrow and Kate Blanchett both in this movie. Like, why didn't they have a brunette? Or, you know, uh, I'm just curious if you think it was a coincidence. No, that's a good question, actually. Um, I, watching this movie, I think that every scene every set, every costume choice, and every casting choice is for a reason. So I don't think it's coincidence that Marge and Meredith look similar, all the way down to the fact that both of their names start with the letter M. Um, mm-hmm. I, I 
I don't know. I can't be sure about the reasoning. What do you think? Well, I was reading some things. Uh, the original, the book written by Patricia uh, Highsmith, there is no Meredith character and there is no Peter character. And um, Anthony Michael was always going to put in a Peter character, but he wasn't going to put in a Meredith character. And then I think Kate Blanchett was going to read for Marge. And he's like, oh my gosh, I love both of these actresses. I want them both in this movie. So he actually writes a part for Meredith. And he was only going to put her in one scene at the very beginning when um, Tom and her meet on the crew- on the ship. And then he was like, I want her to be in more. I want her to be in. She's only in about four or five scenes. But she just steals the show. And I'm so glad they put her in there because... Just her arrogance and how she, like, says, you know, oh, I travel under my mother's name, too, you know, poor little rich kids. And Tom is just hating this because she sees him as Dicky, And he is not a rich kid. He is poor. And having this, like, arrogance of this woman complain about how she's always had to travel under her mother's name so people wouldn't follow her and bother her. It's like, it's like just like vomit, (laughs) like stop talking. She's so irritating, but she's so good. Oh, that's interesting. I had no idea about the casting. That's okay. And I think that it really helped a lot having her in the film because that's um, that's basically like, I can't think of the word right now, but that is what causes the end to happen when Peter sees them kissing on the boat um, where he essentially needs to continue this lie because if she wasn't there if she was never there he wouldn't have had to keep up that tom ripley act or the uh dickie greenfield act and he could have just moved on as tom ripley with peter and just lived a decent life together but i think that because she was so involved in the film and because she had such a big part to play in the end Oh no, I think that she really helped to elevate this film as a whole because it, yeah, it created such a tragic end for this flawed anti-hero that we've been given and how it really goes to show the consequences of his actions from the very start when he introduced himself as Dickie Greenfield to her. Whereas if he just introduced himself as Tom Ripley, Mm, he wouldn't have had that problem. Yeah, that's true. And she's also the only character that's on the outside of the little clique friend group that Tom has now found himself in, or he's still a bit on the outside, but she's the only outsider of it all. And she's not friends with any of them. She doesn't know any of them except Dickie, who she thinks she knows, but she doesn't actually know Dickie. She's never met Dickie. <laughs> she's met Tom. And it's funny when uh, Peter says to her, you know, oh, I'm Peter, you know, have you ever met Tom? And she's like, no, I've heard of him. And it's like, actually, you know him very well. But a couple things about the ending, and and just for people that might have forgotten or don't know it quite well, is uh, Peter, uh, Tom is basically set free. He's not charged for the murders. He is no one, he never got caught, basically. And Dickie Greenleaf's dad even tells him, like, you know, you've been such a good friend to my son. And I'm like, yeah, totally. He murdered him, but okay. And <laughs> and uh, Peter and Tom are going away together. I don't remember where. Uh, uh, but Peter is um, played by Jack Davenport as this pianist. He's a, um, oh, no, he's not a pianist. He's a uh, conductor, right? Classical conductor. Something that Tom on the other hand, 
would have always wanted to do. And I'm curious if when Marge sees them, uh, when Meredith sees them on the boat together and, you know, they're a couple and Peter has to, uh, Marge, uh, Meredith, sorry, I'm getting these names wrong. Meredith comes down to see Tom, uh, but he's Dickie and Meredith, Tom knows then that he has to kill either Meredith or Peter because there's two people on this ship that know him as two different people. And we see a faraway shot of Meredith with all this, these family members and other people. So he knows, I cannot kill Meredith, but Peter is on his own. And the only one who knows that he was there in the first place is Tom. Two things, though. What does he do with Peter's body on a cruise ship? <laughs> uh, hides it under the bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, do you think he becomes Peter in the end? Like, he gives up his dicky. Uh, well, he has to because uh, you find out why he has to give up his dicky um, personality because he writes a suicide note pretending Dickie killed himself. But um, do you think he becomes Peter? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I never thought about that. Oh, no. <laughs> oh i don't I know spot, sorry. yeah no this is a good one i need to think about this um shit <laughs> i think that it's hard to say because at this point meredith has seen him and meredith knows that he's dickie greenfield and so have the other people that were with her so i mm, i don't know because, on the one hand, there's witnesses that have seen Dickie Greenfield alive and on a boat, uh, quote, outside of police custody, unquote. Mm. Um, oh, but on the other, yeah, he might just try to adapt a new life altogether. Yeah, this, I like that we don't know. And I like that, you know, he's just kind of... Um, it just kind of ends that way and the basement door closes and you're kind of thinking, well, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's playing piano, Tom, and you kind of see how he longs and his first love is classical music. I do believe he grows to love jazz, but he loves classical music. And then meeting this guy that, you know, this is what he does as a living. Uh, if he could do it somewhere else and just drop Meredith entirely, I'd say totally. But since Meredith is still kind of in his life, he might just end up marrying her because they kiss in the very end and then have another nice life and just, you know, be rich forever as Dickie. Yeah. Um, apparently there's a couple poorly received sequels, so we might get the answers there. Um... <laughs> Did you know that there was actually an original um, French New Wave film, which I've actually seen at the Cinematheque a couple years ago? No way. Yeah, it's called Purple Noon, and it's with Alain Delon, and it's in the very early 1960s, and Alain Delon plays Tom Ripley. There is no Meredith character, there's no Peter character, there's just Ripley, Greenleaf, and Marge. And I do not think it's even close to being as good as this movie. Let me tell you, like, it's okay. But first of all, there is no, and nothing to do with, like, you know, having a homosexual relationship. None of that's in there with the production code still around. But 
actually what happens is Alain Delon's character kills Dickie's character, and then he actually ends up marrying Marge, which is really weird. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see what they tried to do. Yeah, I can see what they tried to do, and it might have been loyal to the book. I'm not 100% sure because I haven't read it, so I can't really say. Um, but I, f- I don't know. I, I find this so much more compelling because it adds so many more layers to the character as a whole. Um, with the fact that he is homosexual and he has to act heterosexual as opposed to him being like, oh yeah, no, I'm straight, now I can marry this girl and have a happy life until I get caught. Whereas this is just, this is so much more compelling for the character's drive and his motivations and the reason that he's doing all these, like, heinous acts. Like, it's, I, I, I like this version better. I have not seen the original, but um, from what I hear, this is just a better crafted yeah. film. But the irony is I don't really hear people talking about this movie, which makes me really sad because it's definitely my favorite Matt Damon film. I think it's his best role. Again, just my opinion. I'm, I've never been really into the Bourne films. I've seen them. They're okay. But uh, this is just... This and Good Will Hunting. But this one's just out of the park for him. So did the talented Mr. Ripley move you or not? A hundred percent, yeah. Um, this film created some of the most... I don't know. It definitely gave me some more complicated feelings than most other films do about their main characters, partly because of how I know we're not supposed to sympathize with him. And I know that he does like some awful things just to push himself even further and get himself out of trouble. But the way that this film is so meticulously crafted makes it such an emotional journey. And like, you feel everything. You feel the happy moments. You feel the heartbreaking moments, especially at the end. You feel, like, the confused, angry moments. You feel the stress that he feels in the moments where he doesn't want to give away the fact that his ring is currently on his finger, um, which is ultimately Chekhov's bullet throughout the film because, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow finds it um, just at random. But... I don't know, this film, it really did move me in a way that, it's not that I wasn't expecting it because I've heard such great things about the film, but it nonetheless found a way to exceed expectations. Uh, How about you? Yeah, oh my gosh, like 500% it moved me. And every time I revisit it, I think this is about the fourth or fifth time I've seen this film, I just love every second of it, even though I know what's going to happen. Just Matt Damon's performance and the awe that he brings and Jude Law brings and how you're rooting for basically a horrible person, a killer. And just the soundtrack is amazing. I totally recommend people to download the soundtrack or listen to it. And the fact that all six of the actors in it are excellent. Like, what movie has six actors in it that are all perfect. I don't think there's any other movie. They all bring so much creativity and roundness to each of their characters, even though some of the the latter three we don't see as much, but they're so interesting. And um, just the fact that 
you know, this is a period film. It is set in the 50s, but it still has so much modern potential. And it doesn't really feel like you're watching a psychological thriller. You really feel like you're in Italy on a trip in the first half of the movie. And you forget, you know, you're watching somebody murder someone. And then the second half is more, you know, the existential crisis for Tom and how he's like having these inner demons. And, you know, because he killed Dickie, he needs to kill these other people to not get caught and how he's just you know, challenging the policemen and you think the policemen are so stupid and you're like, come on, don't come to his house even though they're just doing their job and you almost feel angry at the policemen and they're just so dumb. <laughs> but it's so well done. I think this is one of the most rewatchable films, at least in my opinion, and you can visit it any time. Um, but also, so yeah, definitely moved me. Uh, I heard that Netflix wants to make it into a potential TV, like, mini-series. Could you see this working? Um, not on the level that this did. Um, I can see them doing their best at giving it a shot. Um, but unless they got somebody like, I don't know, like, David Fincher to do it. Like, he did gorgeous work with Mindhunter. And I think he's really the only person that would be able to pull something like this off. Um, but I, this is one of those films that I don't think needs to be touched because um, it works so flawlessly on its own. And it's like you said, like it's so timeless and it does have that modern feel to it, despite, despite the fact that it was made in the 90s and set in the 50s. Like it's, it really is just one of those films that... I don't know. Don't make a mini series. That's dumb. Yeah, no, I know. I agree. It's such a classic. Like I hold it there in like my top twenty films because it's so good, and I just don't think anyone has the chops to play Mr. Ripley. Like I'm th- trying to think of somebody that's like twenty five, thirty. I-, I mean, Timothy Chalamet can't do that, and I just, I just, it just makes me. It's really hard to think of somebody that could pull it off as well as Matt Damon did. And the other sub-characters. Like, you can't get, you know, a perfect Meredith and a perfect Marge right now. I don't I don't see that working for people in our generation. Um, like, someone like Emma Watson just doesn't know. I just... Elle Fanning, I can't see it. <laughs> yeah, the things that these actors did... And then you gotta have Dickie... Can't be replaced. No. No, and Jude Law is, like, so perfect as Dickie. And he just has this arrogance, and, and you actually want to be him. I think there's all people we have either met or people we have seen on screen that we just wish we were kind of like. Not to the drastic stance that, that Ripley takes it in, but there's always that person that we admire, we really wish we were like. And they just pull that off so perfectly. Because we've all felt that in our lives at one point, whether it's someone we know or someone we've seen on screen. And I don't think you can do that over again. Yeah. And I think that that's part of what makes this such a timeless film, as you pointed out, is that despite, or not despite, but, you know, aside from the lying and the murders and the extremes that he goes to, I think that we can all relate to Ripley as a character. Um... Just, yeah, we've all been there, and I think we're all going to continue to be there for as long as there's celebrities that exist. Um, 
which will be a very, very long time. Um, which also might be why we root for Ripley, the underdog character that gets to live out his dream of this person that he essentially grows to idolize. Is that, yeah, it very much is a timeless story. If you haven't seen it yet, watch it. Um, I know we kind of spoiled it, but it's it won't take away from the experience. <laughs> um, there's also another... every murder that happened. <laughs> uh, we didn't say how they happened. <laughs> I don't know. There's a film that I would recommend if you haven't seen it yet. Um, this goes not only for yourself, but for everybody. Um, it's from the same author, Patricia Highsmith, and it's called The Two Faces of January. And it's very similar in the sense that it's very much like a psychotic or a psychological thriller. Um, but it follows this con artist and his wife and a stranger they meet who flee to Athens. Um, and it's basically a cat and mouse game. It's got Viggo Mortensen, Oscar Isaac, uh, Kirsten Dunst. Uh, and it's one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. And it's a very similar style to this, where it's, you know, like, you get these great cinematic shots, amazing costumes, great writing. Um, so if you do like Talented Mr. Ripley, definitely check that one out. It's funny, though, that Patricia Highsmith, I had never heard of this film, so I'm definitely going to check it out now. But I'm surprised that she wrote such similar books. Uh, anyways, I totally think that everybody should watch this movie. And it still kind of makes me sad that it's not really a movie that everybody knows. Like, when I do talk about this movie with people I know, even, like, family members, they've never watched it. And it just makes me really sad that it's so underrated, yet it did get some Oscar attention, even though I wish it had gotten more. And... I mean, who doesn't like Matt Damon? Everybody likes Matt Damon. He's just kind of like that everyman character. And he does such an excellent job. Totally recommend this movie. And yeah, watch that other movie. And listen to the soundtrack. I want to thank you, Jamal, for coming back on the podcast for the second time. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again. This is a great film to talk about. Yes. And there's so many other great films. But I'm glad we're ending this one on psychological thrillers because it's my personal favorite psychological thriller and I want to thank you all out there for listening